tonight I'd like to speak about working with the hindrances in metta practice. Whatever spiritual journey we embark upon, it always involves opening, opening the heart, opening the mind, and discovering what is there to open to. In order to do this, we need to have an enormous amount of dedication, as we all do here at certain times, a little less, certain times a little more. But it takes this enormous, noble dedication to do this in order to open our hearts, in order to uncover or rediscover the truth of how things are, to discover the natural luminosity of our hearts and our minds. When we want to do this kind of opening, we can't just choose. You know, when I open, I'm just going to open to what's beautiful and blissful and easy. But when we make this decision or this kind of choice to walk on a spiritual path, we make a sort of sometimes unconscious decision, we, or we don't know that we're also going to open to what's very difficult, what's challenging. Even the Buddha and I was reminded today in one of our group sessions that Christ also had to open to all these difficult forces that assail us. And when the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree 2,600 years ago, almost, he too, like we in our practice here, was assailed by uh, all the forces of Mara, Mara being the personification of different aspects of greed, hatred, and delusion. So it really takes this very delicate strength in the practice here, and a kind of courage that comes from the heart, not a willful way of doing it, but kind of a heartfelt courage uh, to allow ourselves to open one moment at a time. Here. And that's a very important part of the practice to pay attention to, is that we really only open one moment at a time. And if we can take the practice that way, it doesn't seem like such an enormous leap that we have to make. If we can just learn to trust one moment at a time, if we can learn to allow ourselves to kind of fall into the next moment of mystery and not need to control what's going on. We're learning how to allow metta to open and blossom in our hearts like one petal at a time. When a blossom, when a flower opens, it doesn't open all at once. It opens bit by bit. And so that's, if we can take the practice in that kind of a process, it's a lot easier. I remember a long time ago, um, the father of my children gave me a very great lesson when I was uh, frustrated one time at, you know, the challenge of working with a a spouse and on the spiritual path and 
I wanted him to open more quickly than he really could, than was really natural for him. And so he asked me, he beseeched me to let him open his petals one petal at a time and not to force the petals open. And I remember that each time when I'm sitting and I want it to go faster than it's really going and I want to kind of pull my petals open. And it doesn't happen that way. For me, it's been a long and gradual process, but one that, uh, you know, when I look back 20 years ago, I can see, well, I can see some opening. But when I try to compare it with even a year ago, I can't see much. So it's, it's really important to, to take it in that kind of gradual way, to let it be a moment-to-moment thing. It's painful to open, but it's really more painful to remain closed. Something I read, a beautiful line from Anayasnin, has really touched me uh, over the years. I've read it a, a, a number of times, but it still continues to help me see it more honestly. And the day came, she says, when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to open. We risk exposing our vulnerabilities. We risk humbling ourselves. We risk finding out that we don't need to be right. Uh, a friend of mine um, that I worked with one time said something that stayed with me a long time. She said she finally came to me after doing um, some meta practice for a few months, and she said, you know, Kamala, I finally discovered that I'd rather be free than right. I'd rather be free than right. Because every moment that she held on to being right, it was a moment of pain, of suffering, of remaining closed down. Here we're unfolding the folded up parts of ourselves. We're getting more honest with how things are in our hearts. And that takes an incredible amount of courage. One of the translations of karuna, which means compassion, Uh, One of the translations in Sanskrit of that word means courageous heart, courageous heart. The unloved or unlovable parts of ourselves get exposed in this practice, sometimes I think more quickly or and more clearly than when we do Vipassana practice. Maybe it's because we surround ourselves with care and love or we try to, and maybe in that kind of safety, that kind of safe container, our hearts feel it's easier to open. It's okay to open. And those unlovable parts of ourselves get exposed very quickly. And here we're learning not just to do, you know, to do this metta practice in the particular method that we're being guided in, But we're also learning something very important here. 
we're learning to accept and to love those unloved parts of ourselves, which in itself is metta practice, to touch those dark places, folded up places that are just folding open in our hearts and saying in a, in a way, it's okay, you can open. I can be with you. Metta practice is allowing ourselves to discover all of that with more gentleness and not to push it away, not to condemn it, not to say, this is not right, I'm supposed to just be experiencing love here, but to meet those places with love. One of the root descriptions of the word metta is gentleness itself. One of the um, metaphors given in the scriptures is that metta is like a gentle rain falling on everything below without discrimination. And so it's like accepting all of us, all of who we are, without pushing it away. And as with any practice that allows us to look deeply within the container of stillness, which we're doing here, a lot gets exposed. Fear and jealousy and terror and grief and despair and doubt, frustration, anger, longing. A lot gets exposed in this kind of a container. The gentleness that we learn with the practice, the acceptance that comes from a kind of clarity and honesty, that kind of acceptance. I'm not talking about the kind of acceptance that's a, a resignation that's different. But a clear and honest acceptance of how things are being unfolded in our hearts, patience, the patience it takes to face whatever comes moment to moment, all of these qualities are being cultivated here as we do our practice moment to moment. It's not just that we're aiming for this one big experience here of uh, you know, some kind of blissful state. Moment to moment, we have an opportunity to get um, awakened, to be liberated from the prison of the suffering that comes from these deep habit patterns. And all of these, the gentleness, the patience, the clarity, the honesty, the acceptance, the tolerance, the spaciousness, all of these are aspects of metta. They're like divine attitudes that we can develop moment to moment with each of these hindrances. And this in itself is a cultivation of loving kindness. So every time we face one of these hindrances, all of the various ways that they expose themselves we have an opportunity to cultivate something wise and something more useful in our lives. So even though we don't feel connected to our hearts, as a lot of you expressed today, I don't feel connected to my heart. I don't feel like I'm coming from a place of sincerity. 
the actually the moment that you bring a, a, a aspect of metta like acceptance to that frustration, to that impatience, to that wanting for another experience. Every time we bring a moment of acceptance there, of clarity there, that is a moment of metta. And so our practice is being fulfilled right in that moment. Rilke says, perhaps everything terrible is in its deepest being something that needs our love. So when people ask me before they get to a retreat, what am I going to experience? What is it like? Well, the answer is, as you know, you experience everything. You experience the joy and the sorrow, the pain and the pleasure of this practice. But you learn to experience it all with more gentleness, with more metta with a gentle awareness. So I'd like to go through the hindrances and describe a bit uh, about them and how they might arise in our practice here of metta and give some antidotes. And a lot of you have probably heard about or uh, heard a talk on these hindrances quite a few times already. So these are just reminders of how to work with them. So the first is sloth and torpor, or sleepiness. The second one I'll speak about is doubt. The third is aversion. The fourth is restlessness. And the last one is desire or attachment. So this is a way, when we go over them, to get familiar with the terrain of our hearts, because this is what's real. This is what's happening. And the, the sooner that we recognize and accept and uh, know this terrain, or sometimes it's a new frontier for us of our hearts, the less fear we have to, to face them. The first of uh, sloth and torpor is often manifested in just pure sleepiness. And it's quite understandable when we first come to a retreat. Um, we're, we're just plain tired from the busyness of our lives because it takes a lot simply to get here. Sometimes uh, to get away for a week, I know that it takes several months of preparation just to get away for a week. All the stuff we need to go through we can be pretty tired when we get here. And it's almost like we're, we've come here with the energy of a freight train. And then, you know, we go into our first sitting and we ask you to, like, be a freight train stopping on a dime. So it's pretty, pretty radical to get here and to begin to do this practice immediately. And when we get here, it's quiet and it's pretty still. So all those are just kind of like the container in a in our usual life of sleepiness. When it's quiet and still, that's kind of the formula for going to sleep. And we have to learn almost to be awake in the quiet and the stillness. We learn, have to learn how to, ways to be more awake within that quiet and stillness. 
So basically, we're learning that and relearning that over and over again in our practice, how to be awake within quiet and stillness. The subjective feeling of that, um, as you all know, and sometimes we don't really know it because when we're sleepy, we're not as alert, we're not as aware, we're not as awake. It took me a long, long time to be really aware of sleepiness, to see what feelings in the body can arise, how the mind feels. If you pay attention to all these things, it's more liable to keep you awake. Like, what does the body feel like when it's sluggish? You know, it feels heavy. It feels like you're slogging through mud sometimes. It feels like uh, the mind is unworkable. There might not be much interest to, to pay attention, to get to the next phrase. Um, there's, there's a great seduction to sleep because sleep is so pleasant and the frustration of the repetitiveness can be so unpleasant. So we're drawn to the pleasant. There might be a swaying in the body that we can pay attention to, you know, in the beginning uh, practices, in the beginning sittings, it's really interesting to, to open my eyes and to see the, you know, how everybody's going like this. <laughs> and I do that too, because uh, oftentimes we arrive as, as teachers, we're arriving from someplace else, and like you all, and have taken a plane and have been quite busy in order to get here. There's low energy in the body, there's low energy in the mind, and the mind isn't clear. And the delusion is really thick here. And so it can get really frustrating when we're working with it, because when delusion is there, we have this thought that keeps running through the mind that this is what it's going to be like through the whole retreat. This moment will last forever when delusion is there. That's what it says. This moment will last forever. But it's really impermanent, and we can't see it in the moment. So what really helps sometimes is to bring attention to how the body feels in in just that time. Just the swaying of the body. Sometimes bringing attention to what's moving helps, you know, and if you're swaying, you're you're moving. When I was... um, Last year, or the year before, I did some practice at IMS, and I did the first six weeks. Uh, and the second six weeks, after practicing, I was going to be teaching that retreat. And so to get there, it took an enormous amount of energy just to get there, to prepare everything, to be away from home for three months. And when I got there, I was sitting kind of uh, in the middle on one side where the women were sitting, and uh, I was really sleepy. It was like I couldn't even hold my head up. I was so sleepy. My head just kept dropping down. And then before I knew it, it was like my whole body was collapsed. And so what awakened me during that time, it kept me awake, is the, the fear of the other yogis seeing me asleep. <laughs> I, felt, I, I felt like, oh, I'm not a good example of the Dhamma. And uh, 
I remember what a, a Vietnamese girlfriend told me that uh, it, it's bad advertisement for the Dharma to fall asleep. <laughs> and so I kept hearing her voice, bad advertisement for the Dharma, bad advertisement. <laughs> so I got up and I went to the back of the room and I sat in the chair in the back of the room. But I was sitting in the chair and the bell rang and people got out, got up and were walking out and I, my head was drooped down and I thought, well, that's not going to work either, you know. And so uh, then I realized that my body was swaying. You know, the, uh, I started to have the determination to see when sleepiness, the moment it began to arise. And so I, I began to see that the body would sway ever so slightly and bring attention just to that place. And it was so interesting how just that kept me awake. You know, the, the moment that the, the swaying of the body or the moment that the head started to fall. And just that little determination to watch the beginning of, of sleepiness arise kept me awake moment to moment. And it kept my energy um, nearby. Another thing you can do if that doesn't work, and oftentimes it, that doesn't because we're just too darn tired and sleepy, is to stand up. And it might be embarrassing at first, you know, to stand up, but in a retreat, one person always starts out, and then somebody else, and then you feel, okay, it's all right to stand up. And after all, mostly everybody's got their eyes closed. And so you can stand up very quietly. And um, when you're standing up, the alertness that it takes to stand up and the fear that you don't want to fall down on somebody <laughs> next to you will keep you awake. I haven't heard of anybody falling. I haven't seen anybody fall over yet, but uh, actually I've heard of it. So, I mean, maybe just that thought will keep you awake when you're standing up. But it really does work to stand up. Don't be ashamed to stand up because it really creates that balance of energy that you need to stay with what you're doing. Stand up if you need to, and if you need to at the same time, or if you don't want to stand up, is open your eyes and look at a light. And we have lots of good windows here. Just opening your eyes and looking out outside at a light really helps. Just do it once, and you'll see, if you really pay attention, the infusion of energy that you get in your body and in your mind. It really awakens you enough to keep you going. Pull your earlobes. The Buddha um, said that, to pull your earlobes. And um, an acupuncturist friend of mine said that something helps with that in your inner balance, you know, to do that. But I always look at the Buddha. He has long earlobes, <laughs> you know. <laughs> he might have pulled them for many, many lifetimes. Maybe that's why they were long. So I, it's okay to pull your earlobes. Um, mostly keep connecting to the phrases in the metta practice. As you're doing all of that, keep connecting to the metta phrases. The connection over and over and over again really raises your level of energy. The continuity of energy that it takes moment to moment to connect your energy 
to that reflection, to the phrase, or to the person that uh, you're either envisioning or uh, connecting to in a felt sense sort of way, the beginning again, over and over again, that kind of work, that kind of connection raises your level of energy. It's really important, that connecting part of the practice. It's actually said that the connecting of our energy to our object of meditation overcomes sloth and torpor. Connecting overcomes sloth and torpor, whatever it is, you know, to the breath when it's vipassana, but here to, um, to the phrase itself, to the person that we're working with. It brings, it makes the energy clearer. It takes energy and it creates energy when we do that. The second is doubt, the second hindrance. And this manifests as confusion a lot, confusion in the moment, in the practice. And we might be asking questions a lot, like, what am I supposed to do anyway? Am I supposed to be saying this? Or how's the phrase supposed to go? Where am I right now? Should I change the phrase? Should I stay with this? Should I be doing this practice? Maybe I should um, go home. You know, we're asking ourselves these questions. Can I really do this? And that kind of questioning, a lot of times, we get caught up in comparing. Maybe, you know, this worked better. Maybe I should be doing that practice instead of this. We get caught up in how we want it to be instead of how it is. You know, it it can lead a lot, doubt can lead a lot to the wanting mind. They're kind of all tied in in a way. It's hard to separate them. But um, there is this confusion that we have. The, The overall feeling tone of the mind is a mind of confusion. Sometimes we end up, because of that, we want to figure it out or we want to fix it. And when we find ourselves doing that, if we can just recognize that doubt is happening, uh, the first step in, in overcoming or seeing through these hindrances is first to recognize what's going on. If we can recognize what's going on, in that moment of recognition, the doubt itself is dispelled in that moment of recognition. Because when you recognize what's going on, you're clear about what's going on. And when you're clear, there's no doubt, even when you're clear about doubt itself. So uh, that moment of recognition is really, really important. The antidote to doubt is a lot of times we need to ask questions. You know, so the, the opportunity in the hall or in the group interviews is really important to ask your questions to clarify what's that niggling doubt that you have about the phrase you're using, about the practice, or whatever it is. And we need to get as practical as that sometimes. Ask the question, get clear about what we're supposed to be doing, clarify. Or maybe what we need is a perspective, just a different perspective to keep us going on the path. Maybe we don't answer the questions that we need to get answered, but we get a perspective that infuses us with a little more energy that keeps us going, where we can kind of put the doubt aside for a little while. 
And maybe just that little bit of clarity gives us the commitment to keep going. Mostly it's making the commitment to keep going in overcoming the doubt. If we sustain our attention, if, if the doubt is just a niggling doubt and you know the questions just kind of remain in the background, but you can sustain your attention on keeping the phrases going, or you know whatever you're coming back to at that moment. Maybe you're, you're needing to revivify the person that you're on. You, you're needing to really make clear, this is the person that I'm sending metta to right now. If you can sustain your attention on that, not just connect, but sustain your attention there, the sustaining of attention is said to dispel doubt. Because when we sustain our attention, we tend to, at least even if it's in the moment, we tend to rest in that moment. And we kind of tend to merge with that moment. We, we get absorbed, even with that moment, just a bit. And that resting or that absorbing uh, with that moment, when we sustain the attention, dispels doubt. Because uh, the mind is no longer restless. It's no longer going here and there. It's no longer trying to find something else. It's okay to be just right there. And that's why we ask you to just keep saying the phrases, because that connecting and the sustaining is really important in the practice. If you can keep the, um, the, the questions in the background and keep up, keep your practice in the foreground, that really, really helps. The third hindrance is aversion. So we have um, sleepiness or sloth and torpor, and um, then we have doubt, and the third is aversion. Aversion is called the far enemy of metta or loving-kindness. It's called the far enemy my understanding of it is because you can see it even when it's far away. It's like sometimes likened to a forest fire, you know, that you can see. There's a lot of signals. It's, it's hot. There's smoke. You know, you can see the flames. Um, it's red. It's likened to a forest fire, and you can see it from afar. And it's sometimes... Um, likened to a forest fire because it said that it quickly consumes everything in its path. It quickly consumes everything in its path, even its support. So aversion, the far enemy, is a really, really nasty thing. (laughs) It's really hard to uh, be up against uh, aversion. But what's good about it is that it's easy to see. And if we begin to recognize uh, the, the um, qualities of it before it gets to be a raging forest fire, that helps. If we begin to get familiar with the terrain of our hearts and minds around aversion, hatred, ill will, impatience, all of those qualities that come from hatred or aversion, Uh, this really helps us. So just getting familiar with it is in itself a real strength, is a wisdom 
to get familiar with how does it manifest in my experience, in my life, in my heart, in my moment-to-moment seeing of it, feeling of it. What does it feel like? Does it come on when I feel it at first? Is it hot? Is it fiery? Um, When we were, my partner and I were teaching in Australia a few years ago, we were speaking with one of the monks, the head monk at that time, at this monastery, one of the most beautiful monasteries I've seen, and um, the Serpentine Monastery in Western Australia. And he was telling us of a story a few years before that where there was a forest fire that wiped out all of the trees, or most of them, on that land. And he said that it was so raging, it, it, it covered like miles and miles of, um, of forest. And it was coming closer and closer with incredible speed. And it, it came close to the land that the monastery was on. And so he turned around to, he looked at it, and then he turned around to see where he could run. And then he turned around, and when he turned around, it was right there. It was like just about catching his robes. It was that fast. And that's how it works in our hearts. It's so quick and it's so fast. So to be able to understand how it works in our hearts is a great strength to us, can be a great um, wisdom and help and support for us. So just to be able to explore anger in, our, in my own heart, I've really appreciated being able to do that, even though it's so hard. Sometimes it manifests like an outflowing, like terror or rage or hot-headedness or reactivity um, with, you know, uh, needing to sting or strike out at something. And you feel that really energetically, even though it's not actually happening. You're not putting words or action to it. But you feel the energy to strike out. Sometimes it's a held-in kind of sense, where you feel like it's kind of a grief or despair. Sometimes disappointment feels like that, or even fear, or discouragement, or frustration, or impatience. Those are all ways that they're experienced in a kind of held-in or paralyzing kind of a way. It's really important to recognize when it's there. Again, recognition is really a very key factor in dispelling any of these. Because the moment of recognition, the moment that we bring awareness to that moment, in that moment, whatever is happening is dispelled, because what's stronger is the recognition, and not the fear itself, and not the doubt itself, and not the anger or disappointment itself. But what's really, what's stronger and actually there in that moment is the gentle awareness of it itself. Sometimes it arises very subtly, and we don't even recognize that it's there like irritation or impatience with oneself or the practice or someone nearby. 
And a lot of that, and a lot of any of these, comes out of like a habit pattern. Uh, Someone at this very retreat that I've been helping at for five or six years or something like that, when we used to have this retreat down at Angela Center, when we had all those um, sheep and cows around, named this uh, habit pattern, Cow Paths of the Mind. And I really like that because it's like, you know, we keep going around. It's like a vision of these, how we just keep going around in those cow paths of the mind. And we don't really recognize that, oh, it's just a habit. And, you know, every moment of unrecognized habit makes that cow path deeper. But every time we recognize it, it sort of short circuits that pattern. The force of habit itself is very powerful, you know, not even to mention what, that ha- what is contained in that habit, like irritation or impatience. And they're powerful because they're unrecognized. They're, they're routines of the mind. And those routines cause those ruts in the mind. They unconsciously run their course their own course, in a very unconscious way. Like um, Sharon said earlier, this is from the Buddha, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders on, that will become the inclination of the mind. Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders on, that will become the inclination of the mind or heart. And so a lot of what we frequently ponder and think upon is totally unconscious or habitual patterns. And we have the opportunity here to really break those patterns by recognizing those habits. The mere recognition of them breaks them. So here in the metta practice, those habits are exposed. And those are, they mainly get categorized under these five hindrances. And it's really challenging. The biggest antidote to any of these and to practice itself and to life itself is patience. Patience with oneself. So I remember um, a story in the Buddhist time when there was these first group of monks, the first order of monks. And at that time there weren't any rules yet. But uh, the only rule was patience. That was the only thing that the Buddha asked of the monks during that time. And the kind of patience we ta- we're talking about here is just a moment-to-moment patience. It's, it's the patience not to think, oh, i got to get through this whole sitting or this whole day or this whole week, but it's just the patience to be with this moment and then the next moment and then the next moment. And that patience is in a real practical way manifested as beginning again. You'll hear all of us say it many, many times. If you forget where you are, just begin again. If you're lost in thought, just begin again. And that beginning again is really just infused with patience. It's not a weakness, it's a strength 
to have this kind of beginning again, taking care of the moment, patience. It's a kind of wisdom, patience. I remember an interview once of the Dalai Lama when he was asked about his lack of anger and his boundless patience towards the perpetrators of uh, pain and suffering in his country. And the interviewer asked His Holiness, uh, said, they have taken your lands, your resources, they have harmed your people and looted your temples. How can you remain this way with such boundless patience? And the Dalai Lama answered, they have taken everything from us. Should I let them take my mind as well? And so when we lose our patience, it's like it's a thief in our hearts that we let rob us of our dignity, rob us of our ability to be gracious moment to moment. A lot of times impatience comes because we want something to happen that's not happening, or we want it to happen more quickly than it's happening. We want to attain something. We want to have something in our hands or in our experience to write home about or to tell somebody about. And most of the time, that's not the case in in the practice of metta. We're not really getting anything. But like in the practice of vipassana, we're, we're learning to let go with gentleness. So here in this practice, we're not really, if we can look at it, it's not really attaining anything, but we're learning to let go of all of those ways that cause us pain and suffering. And we're learning to learn a way to live with life more wisely and more gently. And that's a very slow and gradual process. It doesn't happen overnight. Even the Dalai Lama, when he was asked, can you see any progress in your practice from last year? And the Dalai Lama said, no, from last year I don't see any progress. What about from five years ago? No, not even five years ago I don't see any progress. Maybe 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I see a little bit, little bit. So if we can drop our expectations and that notion that there's something to attain here, we're likely to have a lot more patience with ourselves. This is a story from the Honolulu advertiser in the sports section. A young boy traveled across Japan to the school of a famous martial artist. When he arrived at the dojo, or the temple, he was given an audience by the teacher, or the sensei. What do you wish from me? The master asked. I wish to be your student and become the finest karateka in the land, the boy replied. How long must I study? asked the boy. Ten years at least, the master answered. What if I study twice as hard as all your other students? Twenty years, replied the master. (laughs) Twenty years? 
What if I practiced day and night with all my heart and effort? Thirty years, was the master's reply. How is it, the boy asked, that each time I say I will work harder, you tell me that it will take longer? The answer is clear, said the master. When one eye is fixed upon your destination, there is only one eye left with which to find the way. So we want to be really, really present with our practice. And, uh, you know, not to have our energy kind of split in it here. For my own practice, I I use a, a few rules of thumb when I'm working with a hindrance, and especially with a really strong hindrance. The first one is, if I can keep that hindrance in the background of the practice and just keep on track with the metaphrases, then I do that. So if it's just kind of like, um, you know, an annoying train in the background, train of thought or frustration or whatever it is, I just let it remain there. And I keep on track with the metta practice and continue to say the phrases and keep whatever that is in the background. But if that can't happen, then I change the metta a person to another person. And I go back to a person that's easier to develop metta with. Maybe I go back to a dear friend or to that benefactor or to oneself. So just to try to stay on track with the metta, change the person. But if that doesn't work, um, and especially with different forms of aversion, when that's really hard, then I... um, I drop the metta altogether and I bring a metta-like awareness or attention to that strong uh, hindrance itself, to that strong aversion itself, or to whatever is being exposed, until there's more of a balance there. So I just let my attention in a vipassana way. All of you today told me that you had practiced vipassana, or yesterday. So in a Vipassana way, I try to work with it, but bringing kind of a metta or gentleness of attention around it. And every time we do this, every time we bring a gentle attention to what's happening, we're not that far away from the metta practice, actually, because in that moment, in a way, you could say that we're still practicing metta. You know, and and in that moment, there's a moment of freedom, freedom from ill will, if that's what we're experiencing, that's really difficult. In that moment that we bring our attention there, a gentle attention, the strength of our energy is in the gentle attention. It's not so much centered in the aversion itself. It can be more centered in the gentle attention. And so in that moment, we're free from it. There's a kind of freedom that's happening there. There's a kind of awakening that's happening there. And a lot of times what happens in that moment of awakening or freedom is that we don't notice it enough or we don't give it enough energy or we don't stay with it long enough to really recognize it. 
and we kind of get lost again in that moment of ill will or anger or whatever strand of uh, aversion it is. And so if we can just stay with that awakening moment, it's a great, great strength. Um, And we actually deepen our practice when we pay attention to those moments of awakening. Really pay attention right there. Because that moment of awakening, that is a moment of freedom. And we don't give it enough attention. We're so habituated to get lost in the struggle of life. So paying attention to the awakening, to the moment of freedom, is so important. That attention that we give it strengthens it, it cultivates it, it deepens it. And to to notice and to know there can be a freedom from ill will. There can be a turning of the mind towards metta, so that when we feel a sense of balance and we turn the mind towards metta and we again say the phrase that we, we take up again, may I be free or may I be happy or may I be peaceful or may you be in safety, live in safety, whatever it is, that moment is a very conscious moment. It's a moment of very clear intention Here we were lost in unconscious, deluded mind. We became awakened by noticing what was happening. There is a balance, perhaps, that uh, occurs there in our practice. And then we turn towards metta. And that moment of metta is a very conscious moment. So it's like we we come from the unconscious and into the conscious. And it's like the intention, even just the intention, to say that phrase again, may I be safe and protected, is a very liberating moment. It's a very, very strong moment. So it's not just, oh, another phrase. It's not just, oh, boring, you know. That is a very conscious, powerful moment. When you're free from the deluded habitual patterns of struggle and you're saying, this is where the aim of my heart and mind is going, very intentionally. This is where I turn my heart and mind. May I be free. And that's not just a longing or a yearning. That's wise. That's like... This is where I'm going when you turn your mind in that direction. So every time I say that phrase, to me it's like an awakening and it's like a reinforcement of the deepest intention of my heart towards freedom. May I be free from inner and outer harm. May I be happy, truly, truly happy. Not just the happiness of getting what I want, but the happiness beyond all forms of getting. Not just the, the <coughs> happiness of body, but the kind of um, ease of body and mind that no matter what's happening in this body, whether it's painful or pleasurable, I'm not identified with it so that it causes me suffering. 
so the meanings become very, very deep when you do this practice and you become much more conscious of the clear intention and direction of your path. We don't need to struggle with it when we understand it in this way. I know from my own upbringing that I was brought up not by people saying this to me, but by the models I had that struggling is somehow virtuous. And, you know, then we just even struggle with the practice or the phrase, and it's a real deep, unrecognized form of desperation. So can we bring conscious awareness in a meta-like way right there to the feeling of struggle itself in the practice? When I was coming here on the plane, um, actually I was on my way to Vancouver where I first had to go before I came here. I was tired, of course, on the plane. I was taking a period of time to read something, to study something, and I kept falling asleep. And I got really frustrated because I was looking forward to uh, reading a certain number of chapters in this book before I landed. In, in a way, being having that long period of time is such a precious time to me when I get time alone and get to read. And I kept falling asleep, falling asleep, falling asleep, and I kept being frustrated because I was falling asleep. And I had just come from a period of time at home where I was <coughs> practicing a little more than usual. And mostly I was at home, I was doing some metta practice as I was moving about in my life and doing things I needed to do, and a little metta on the sitting cushion. And um, when I got on the plane and started studying and kept falling asleep, I didn't feel any metta at all. It was like I was totally frustrated all the time. And I would wake up, you know, and say some four-letter words to myself, like, you know, well, can't you stay awake? And um, then there was one moment I woke up and um, the words that came were, may I be safe. And it was that one moment that was so powerful and it made me realize, yeah, that's a conscious intention. May I be safe from inner harm. May I be safe from that anger that kind of pulls me in the direction of suffering. So I'm going to take a few more minutes to finish up. There's restlessness. We feel it in the body, we feel it in the mind. It's pretty simple. You know, you don't have to, I don't have to say a lot of words to describe it. Noticing it, recognizing it is sometimes the biggest way to dispel it, to just say, it's just restlessness, and keep on with the phrases. Sometimes you need to just take a long, energetic walk, being saying your phrases and keep on going, and that kind of gets the restlessness out of the body and even the mind. There's a sense of calming that happens when uh, we can just be energetic but continue with our practice. The last one uh, is 
uh, desire or attachment. It's called the near enemy of metta because it can seem like metta. Or we sometimes some things so near we can't recognize them so clearly. That's why it may be called the near enemy. And um, it's hard to recognize because it can be very, very pleasant. Uh, and so it's hard to recognize too because maybe we haven't touched so deeply or often enough the feeling of true metta. And so we think things like romantic love is metta. Or, um, you know, when there's a, a kind of lustful passion there, uh, that could be something like metta, or it's okay to... Steve, my partner, gave me these, this to read about romantic or passionate or lustful love. And this was from a Nike ad. <laughs> and this was a Passion Play Act 1. It says, Lust, I think I love you. Who are you, anyway? Here it is, the big wow, the big G, the big yes, 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 you've been waiting for. This is where you find something or someone and believe they are bigger, greater, cuter, wiser, more wonderful than anything you've ever known. Lust isn't a sin, it's a necessity. (laughs) For with lust as our guide, we imagine our bodies moving the way our bodies were meant to move on marathons with our feet, have stars in our eyes, and we can do the tango. And you think, I have no need for food, I have no need for sleep, I have no needs other than occasional breath mint. (laughs) You're the best thing that's ever happened to me, probably because you haven't happened to me yet. And so we, we take that person up as our metta person, and then we find all kinds of experiences that kind of bring us quietly off track. So be aware of that. That's why we ask that it's better to have someone in the friend category that we we don't or won't likely to have sexual feelings towards. But in this case, you know, attachment to desire usually has something to do with what we want. And it may be in the moment that it manifests that we want something more out of that practice out of that sitting, out of this retreat that we're not getting, rather than being with peace with, at peace with what is. Usually, desire or the, the feeling of attachment, the subjective feeling has something to do with that, something which what isn't happening at the moment. We want it. But just to recognize it is in itself a freedom from it. 